Look how quietly they go. Aren't they awesome? We're continuing in our study of Hebrews today. Our sermon is going to be from Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 2 and 22 from the ESV. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And from Genesis 50, 22 through 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makur, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles McKnight, one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. And this morning, we continue in our sermon series through Hebrews chapter 11's Hall of Faith. If you're visiting with us for the first time for the last several months, we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, and we decided to slow down just a little bit and go back to the original Old Testament stories of each of the folks that are mentioned in the Hebrews chapter 11 Hall of Faith. And we hope that as we slow down to look at some of the particulars of these faith stories, that it will encourage you as believers today to strive to live the life of faith that God is calling us to live today in our world. Last week, one of our pastoral interns, Jacob, who was up here leading liturgy earlier, did a great job of taking us back to the Genesis story of the death of the patriarch, Jacob. And from that narrative last week, we learned that true biblical faith is a faith that holds fast to hope in both life and in death. This week, we look at the next inductee on the wall of the Hebrews Hall of Faith, a man named Joseph. Many of y'all probably know the story of Joseph. It's one of the more popular narratives in Genesis, maybe even in the whole Bible. But in Genesis chapter 30, we learn that Jacob's wife, Rachel, was finally able to conceive a child that she had wanted for so long. And Jacob and Rachel decided to name this child Joseph. Joseph, a name meaning, may God multiply. This name points to God's faithfulness to continue to work out his grand promise, originally given to Jacob's grandfather Abraham, to make him a father of many nations. Now, we don't learn much else about this Joseph until seven chapters later in Genesis 37. But once the book of Genesis shifts its focus to Joseph, 
the spotlight stays almost exclusively on Joseph to the very end of the book. And Joseph's story is one full of drama at the highest order. Joseph's story is one marked by themes such as paternal favoritism, sibling rivalry, snitching, kidnapping, slavery, seduction, injustice, famine, power and prestige, and reconciliation. Joseph's story opens in chapter 37 with a picture of Joseph as a young man, 17 years old, intelligent, handsome, and showered with both privilege and favoritism from his father, Jacob. Joseph was the apple of Papa's eye. He was daddy's little man. And his older brothers, all half-brothers, mind you, same daddy, different mama, saw this blatant favoritism and hated Joseph for it. Joseph didn't really help things. He flaunted his privilege around his older brothers. Now, also around this time, Joseph started having some dreams, some prophetic dreams that revealed that one day Joseph would rule over his brothers. And Joseph tells his brothers this. And of course, that just ticked them off even more. His brothers burned with such contempt for Joseph that they wanted to kill him, literally. So one day they kidnapped Joseph, threw him in a pit, and they planned to murder him only to decide later that it would be better to make a little bit of money off of him by selling him into Egyptian slavery. And to cover up their crime, Joseph's brothers lied to their father Jacob, telling him that the apple of his eye had been devoured by a wild beast. And like any father would be, Jacob was devastated. Meanwhile, Joseph is now a slave in Egypt. But by an, an unusual amount of God's grace, Joseph quickly rises from the gutter of common slave status to become the right-hand man of Potiphar, the chief executive to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. As the rapper Drake might say, Joseph started from the bottom. Now he's here. But not so fast. The young, dashing Joseph catches the wayward eye of Potiphar's desperate housewife. Potiphar's wife throws herself at Joseph, but Joseph, a man of integrity, refused to dishonor his boy Potiphar like that. But even more so, he refused to dishonor his God like that. She didn't like that. And so in anger, she flips the script and accuses Joseph of being the one who forced himself on her. So now you got Joseph, a foreign slave, an ethnic minority that's accused of sexual assault on a high-ranking government official's wife. Y'all know how that story usually pays out. Joseph, who had started from the bottom to rise to the top, gets knocked right back down to the bottom again. Joseph finds himself locked up in prison. But as they say, you can't keep a good man down, especially when God is doing something in and through that person. So in prison, Joseph quickly rises to the status of first trustee. 
Also during this time, Pharaoh started having some dreams of his own that he wanted somebody to interpret. And then one of Joseph's boys from back in the day basically hooks him up with a tryout. And Joseph kills it in front of Pharaoh, right? Joseph's explanation of Pharaoh's dream and his prophecy regarding the coming drought and famine earned Joseph a spot at Pharaoh's right hand. Now understand this. Outside of Pharaoh now, who is the king of Egypt, there is no one more powerful in all of Egypt than Joseph. And just as Joseph had prophesied, drought and famine came over the land. But Joseph's divinely inspired foresight and wisdom had led him to make sure that grain was stored up to survive the famine. And and even more so, Joseph became responsible for the distribution of that grain. And yet one day, I guess it was a regular work day for him. Someone showed up. A few people showed up. And it was none other than Joseph's brothers. Some who know the story will remember that at first, Joseph didn't let his brother know Brothers know who he was, right? He kind of shielded his identity from them. But then later, in a moving and heartwarming scene in chapter 45 of Genesis, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And Joseph brings his long-lost family to live with him in Egypt, sharing with them the wealth and privilege of his high status in Egyptian society. And it's here in Egypt where Jacob, Joseph's father, finally dies as we saw last week. But after Jacob's death, Joseph's brothers get a little scared. They think, man, now that daddy's gone, he might actually get that revenge that he's always wanted to get on us. But Joseph had no intention of seeking retaliation. Instead, Joseph responds to their fear with one of the clearest and most notable declarations of God's sovereignty in all of scripture. Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And it's at this point in Joseph's story that the narrator fast forwards nearly 60 years to now place us at the bedside of the deathbed of Joseph. And it's what Joseph says here on his deathbed that gets engraved next to his name on the Hebrews wall of faith. Look with me at Hebrews 11.22. It reads, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, this is kind of interesting. The writer of Hebrews declares that from the entirety of Joseph's rich and colorful faith story, this is the standout example of faith from Joseph's life, making mention of the Exodus and telling his family where to bury his bones. It's a little strange. Out of all the examples of faith from Joseph's life, why would the author of Hebrews choose this? This is what I first wondered at least when I started looking at this text. But brothers and sisters, for the past several days as I've studied and reflected on this text, I've come to see that Joseph's final words concerning the Exodus 
and his bones powerfully portrays the vibrant and focused faith of a dying man. I've come to see that Joseph's final words thousands of years ago revealed to you and I, God's people today, that one of the defining characteristics of biblical faith is that it remains focused on its final destination. It holds on to the hope of eternity. In other words, brothers and sisters, biblical faith, according to this Joseph narrative, is a faith that keeps its eyes on the prize. Eyes on the prize. Some of y'all might be familiar with this slogan. It became popular during the African-American civil rights movement. It was a saying that reminded black folk in America to stay focused on the ultimate political goal of true equality and real freedom in this country. Keep your eyes on the prize, they would say and sing. And I believe that the Lord is telling us this morning through Joseph's final words to keep our eyes on the eternal prize, to, to stay focused on God's ultimate eternal plan for the total and complete redemption of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. More specifically, I believe that Joseph's final words actually warn us today to not allow our temporal experiences to cause us to lose sight of the eternal prize. If you're taking notes this morning, that's my main and only point I want you to get this morning. That we must not allow our temporal experiences, and by temporal experiences, I mean all the good and the bad stuff that we experience in this life to cause us to lose sight of the eternal prize. Look back with me at the beginning of Genesis. Um, our Genesis passage at verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, Joseph, I'm sorry, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. 110 years Joseph lived, that's a long time. The narrator wants you to see that as a long time. As a matter of fact, in my research, I discovered that in Egyptian culture, 110 years was seen as the ideal lifespan. Regardless of what occurred in those 110 years, just the fact that he had lived to be 110 years old was a sign of divine blessing. And nearly 80 years of Joseph's long earthly life had been lived at the highest level of Egyptian wealth, prestige, and power. I believe that's why in verse 22 it opens by telling us what? That Joseph remained in Egypt in Egypt where he had it all. Joseph was living large, as we say, in Egypt. And verse 23 reveals that Joseph had also been blessed with a community, a family, with a big family, with children and children's children and children's children's children, with whom he shared all the temporal fruits of his labor. As verse 23 reads, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. 
That's not printed in the text that you have this morning. But we learn in Genesis 41 that Joseph marries an Egyptian woman and, and the two of them together had been blessed with two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was Joseph's oldest son. And his name means, this is interesting, to cause to forget. His name points to the fact that after all the jump that Joseph went through in his past, the Lord had more than made up for it. God had blessed Joseph real good, so good that it had caused him to forget, to Manasseh, to get over his past woes. And verse 23 also mentions Joseph's second son named Ephraim. Now, Ephraim's name means fruitful. Again, this points to the fact that God not had, had not only redeemed Joseph from a lot of his past setbacks, but had actually enabled him to flourish, to Ephraim, to be fruitful in Egypt. The narrator wants us to see that God had showered Joseph with all kinds of blessings while he was in Egypt over the past 80 years of his life. Yet Joseph, as a man of intense faith, didn't allow these good temporal experiences to cause him to lose sight of the eternal prize. And he didn't want his family to lose sight of it either. This is clear from what Joseph tells his family in verse 24. Look there with me. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph, at the end of his life, looked past all that the Lord had blessed him with in this life to God's eternal promise. Joseph didn't allow the good of this life to shadow his vision of the greatness of the next life. All of us here this morning know at least a little bit of something about the temporal gifts of the Lord. The Lord has given many of you academic, artistic, athletic skills and abilities that have allowed you to have some success in this life. Some of y'all got magnetic personalities charm, charisma, good looks. Some of y'all even got a little bit of swag, as they say. And those things have helped you to achieve some things and to get some things in this world. God's blessed many of you with reasonable health, a, a decent job, and with that decent job, a house to live in, a car to drive, a few dollars in the bank. God's even given a few of y'all a little bit of influence and power in this world. Y'all got friends and family. Some of y'all got a spouse, a kid, a couple kids, two, three, four, five kids, right? And you were able to get those kids in that private school, in that charter school, in that magnet school, in that neighborhood school, in that home school that you always wanted them in. Some of y'all are the princes and princesses of your families. When the drought comes, they come running to you. 
we too, like Joseph, at least to some degree have experienced a few temporal gifts and blessings in this life. Am I right? But brothers and sisters, be reminded, be challenged, be warned by Joseph's deathbed message not to allow the allure of those good temporal things to cause you to shift your eyes off the eternal prize. Look, y'all, I know how easy it is to get so full off of the success and the accolades and the material things that this life affords that you lose hunger for the eternal promise of God. So yes, be thankful for all that God has given you, but never let the temporal things he's given cause your eye to wander away from his eternal prize. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on the prize. But it's not just the temporal good things in this life that can tempt us to lose sight of the prize, but also the problems and struggles and heartaches of this life can also lure your eyes away from the prize. We know that Joseph knew a little bit of something about problems, struggles, and heartaches in his life. Again, early on, Joseph experienced all kinds of family issues. Joseph had felt the hurt of being done wrong by somebody closest to him. Joseph had experienced the pains of injustice. And even though things got way better for Joseph later in his life, we have to believe that he still experienced all kinds of problems, struggles, and heartaches just by living, right? As a broken person in this broken world. And don't miss the fact that even though Jacob lived to the ripe old age of 110, he didn't live to 111, right? As the beginning of verse 26 puts it bluntly, so Joseph died being 110 years old. All the intellectual capital Joseph had, all the financial capital Joseph had, all the social capital that Joseph had couldn't shield him from death. But again, just like with the good stuff, Joseph didn't allow bad temporal experiences to cause him to lose sight of the eternal prize. And again, he didn't want his family to either. Again, in verse 24, Joseph says, and he said to his brothers, I, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph, at the end of his life, looked past all the mess that he had gone through. He even looked past death standing at his door in order to keep his eyes fixed on God's eternal prize. Again, like Joseph, all of us here this morning know at least a little something about problems, struggles, and heartaches in this life, amen? Some of y'all know about the favoritism or neglect 
of a parent, the pressures of unfair expectations, strained family relationships, rocky and broken marriages, betrayal by those that you trusted, being bullied and abused, loneliness and depression, chronic physical health battles, money problems, identity issues, experiencing the death of someone you love. And that's not to mention all the countless self-inflicted wounds, right, that come from our own bad, sinful decisions. And it's in the midst of these life issues, brothers and sisters, that we can so easily lose sight of God's eternal promise. All the mess in this life can tempt you to take your eyes off the prize sometimes. It can make you think, God's not there. And if he is there, he must not be as good as I thought he was. It can make you think that there is absolutely no way God is actually moving things towards his final plan of redemption. But brothers and sisters, Joseph's final words to his family and to us today is a loud reminder to not allow the temporal experiences, whether good or bad, to make us lose sight of the eternal prize. We can't allow the bright flashes of prosperity, nor the black holes of struggle in this life blind our eyes to seeing the beauty of the hope of the next life. I'll say that again. We can't allow the bright flashes of prosperity in this life, nor the black holes of struggle in this life to blind our eyes to seeing the beauty of the hope of the next life. Keep your eyes on the prize. And I love the way that Joseph describes this prize in verse 24. Joseph says that the grand prize that he has his eyes on is a visit from God. Verse 24 again, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. You know, it feels good to get a visit from someone that you know really cares about you. Personally, for me, I love it when my dad comes for, for a visit. Now, I'm a grown man, got a wife, two mortgages, three kids, one on the way, but I still love it when my daddy comes to town. Because I know when he rolls in, the blessings roll in with him. He's gonna slide me a little cash. He might buy some things for the girls. We're gonna go out to eat. But even more than that, it's just his presence. I, 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 don't, I don't really know, I was thinking about this the other day, I can't really, explain it, but it's, it's, when he, it's like when he comes, there's this heightened sense of security and peace and confidence and joy that he brings with him. I love it when my dad 
comes to visit. But daddy's visit ain't got nothing on a visit from God. The text doesn't say this, but I imagine Joseph may have looked around that room at all the worried faces on his family members as he lay there dying and realized they may have been looking to him as the symbol of God's promises. And so his death might make them doubt whether God will be faithful to fulfill his promise. So a dying Joseph turns to his family and assures them that God will do what he said he will do. What God told Joseph's great granddaddy Abraham, what God told Joseph's granddaddy Isaac, and what he told Joseph's daddy Jacob, God is going to do. And Joseph lets them know that he's sure God's going to do what he said he's going to do. That's what it says in the beginning of verse 25. Joseph says, God will surely, absolutely, like without a doubt, visit you. Joseph is saying, look, y'all, God is not some type of deadbeat dad that says that he's going to come for a visit and never shows up. Now, these little luxuries here in Egypt may have caused you to forget that God is coming. And the struggles you may experience here in Egypt when I die may make you doubt that God is coming. But I promise you, God's promised you through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, that he is surely coming for a visit. And Joseph says, I'm so sure that our God will pay you a delivering visit that I'm going to put my bones on it, right? Not I'm going to put my money on it. I'm going to put my bones on it. Look again at verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones from here. I've used a similar illustration before, but some of y'all know Steph Curry, NBA basketball player, has a shot that is so automatic that sometimes his teammates actually start cheering before the ball even goes in the hoop. Y'all seen that before? While the ball is still in midair, they are already cheering. His release on the ball is so right. His rotation on the ball is so right. The, the arc on the ball is so right that they might as well go ahead and cheer. Brothers and sisters, Joseph knows that his God is automatic with the ball of his eternal promise. His release on the ball of promise is sure. His rotation on the ball of promise is perfect. And the arc on God's ball of promise is precise. So Joseph's like, I'm going to go ahead and cheer. I'm going to go ahead and call God's shot as good. And to let you know how sure I am, I'm going to put my bones on it. And ultimately, Joseph was right. Now, God's visit didn't come immediately. But a few hundred years following Joseph's death and after his, his family had fallen all the way back down into Egyptian slavery, God did indeed visit them. 
and lead them through Moses and, and through Joshua out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. And that's what the book of Exodus and, and the book of Joshua is all about. But brothers and sisters, even the promised land of Canaan wasn't the final destination God had planned for his people. This is what we learned, if y'all remember, back in Hebrews chapter 4 when Pastor Howard preached on that chapter. And God's people of old, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of them knew that God had a more permanent, eternal resting place for his people. A city, the Bible calls it. Not some regular city, but as Hebrews 11:9 describes it, a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And as believers today, brothers and sisters, we already have citizenship in this heavenly kingdom. How so? Well, because 2,000 years ago, God decided to pay his people another visit. It was 2,000 years ago in a little podunk town called Nazareth, that God sent his mighty angel to deliver a message to another man named Joseph. Joseph, the soon-to-be husband of Mary, who would be the mother of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 tells us that the angel came to Joseph and told him that Mary would conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit, and this child shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, God visiting us. God was on his way, y'all, to pay another visit, but this time it was God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came from heaven to earth to once and for all live the perfect life that God's people could not and to die the perfect substitutionary death for us. And he rose in victory over sin, over Satan, over death, all to make us full citizens of God's eternal heavenly city already right here, right now. But obviously we're not physically there, right? We sitting in this what is this building? It was everything, a fish market, skate and rink. We, we worship in it now, right? This ain't the heavenly city. But we will be in that city. Now, question is when? The answer the Bible provides us is that it's when God the Son, Jesus Christ, comes for his second and final visit. Jesus is on his way for another visit, and this time, once and for all. Now, again, I don't know when that's going to be. If someone tells you they know where, when it's going to be, you need to run the other way. Because the Bible tells us that no one knows the minute or the hour of Christ's return. But don't get it twisted. He is coming. Jesus is coming. So keep your eyes on the prize the prize, which is Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews will say in the very next chapter, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? To Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith. And when Jesus returns, when our prize returns, all that we thought was so great in this life will be like nothing. And all that is sad in this life will be made untrue. The book of Revelation says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And we shall dwell with Jesus, our prize, in endless joy forever. Brothers and sisters, as you go through the ups and downs, the good and bad in this life, don't take your eyes off Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prize. We thank you for your great plan of redemption that you drew up before the foundations of the earth, that you, Jesus, agreed to accomplish on our behalf in which you, Holy Spirit, gave us the ability to believe and to trust. We ask you now, Holy Spirit, to help us keep on believing. It's hard sometimes, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on the price. Help us keep our eyes on you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any that you have brought here this morning that have yet to place their eyes on the prize of Jesus, that you would also, Holy Spirit, open their eyes just like you did for us to see Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to hope in Jesus so that they can join us, join the people of God in joyful anticipation of Jesus coming for his final visit. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.